Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner. I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by a returning guest to the podcast, Caitlin Chess, to talk with her about her book, The Ballot and the Bible, and just a whole bunch of other things as well. And so if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, you know, really what we want to do here is create a safe place to have uh, dangerous conversations, to have difficult conversations, and really just engage in our, our curiosity as well and just continue on this lifelong journey of learning. And so if you are also on that journey, I would just recommend that you check out my Substack, which comes out uh, each and every single week to where I give three recommendations for just things that are just engaging my curiosity, some of the things that are engaging my imagination and just kind of what's what's piquing my interest along with some of the things that I'm learning from as well. And uh, all you got to do is subscribe to my Substack. Just put in your email right there and you'll get it each and every single Monday with three things. And that could be anything from new music to uh, fiction books, to biographies, to podcasts, to just YouTube videos that I just think are really cool or quotes that are really just standing out to me as well. Again, all you have to do is subscribe to uh, my Substack, and you'll get them each and every single week for some of the things that I'm learning about. Now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Caitlin Suss, and we're going to be talking about how uh, how the Bible has been uh, used to um, how it's been used for people to uh, to push forward their political views or push forward their political agenda, and how a lot of times it has not been used for the good. In fact, very rarely has been used uh, for the good and has been misused. So let me tell you a little bit about Caitlin and then we'll jump into the conversation. So Caitlin Chess is a writer, speaker, and theologian. She is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor and is a regular co-host on the Holy Post podcast with Sky Jatani and Phil Vischer. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, Relevant, and Sojourners, and she is currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School and currently lives in Durham, North Carolina. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Caitlin, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, one of uh, what I would love to start with is some of the things that you're currently thinking about and learning about. I know, I obviously, we want to get to the book, but I know you read a lot, you learn a lot, and I would just be curious to hear what's engaging uh, your curiosity right now. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, as you said, I wrote a book about... Um, the Bible and American politics. But now I'm like, really, I'm reading a lot of stuff that was like tangentially related to the book. But but you know, you ultimately decide like, okay, I have a deadline, I can't (laughs) read all of this. And so I'm really interested right now in like the history and material culture of the Bible. So like the the history of how we have printed it and how we have treated it and how we've presented it. And I'm also really curious about, I've been doing some research more recently into kind of what study tools we use and the history of concordances and like study Bibles. And I'm just, as someone who cares a lot about the Bible, cares a lot about how we read it and interpret it, especially in community, it's been interesting to read about how the tools available to us shape our understanding of what the Bible is and how we should read it. And so right now I'm reading a lot of like religious historians on who are thinking not only about the Bible and America and especially not just in America, but like, you know, late modern Europe as it relates to kind of coming into America or early modern Europe, excuse me, as it comes into America. And but also about people who are thinking about the printing press and like as printing is developing, how that changes the Bible and, you know, the accessibility of it. And so that's really interesting to me because so many of the ways when in which we read the Bible in our church context, we just assume are kind of normal and natural. And it's instead interesting to think like, oh, it could have been different. Our relationship mm-hmm. to the Bible could have been different. And the conditions under which we read it now, the accessibility we have with it, the tools accessible to us 
are pretty rare in the history of the church. And how has that kind of shaped what we think we're doing and how we interpret it together in community? Mm -hmm. Is there a particular tool that you've been studying or is it more just like, uh, or have you had a chance to study a particular tool or is it more of just, uh, you know, the, the general research so far, and then maybe that expands into a specific set? I'm really interested in concordances and okay. why concordances have been so popular. I didn't realize until I started the general research. We've had concordances, you know, for quite a while, <clears throat> in, like starting in the medieval period, but they were really, really popular in early American history. And so I'm interested in both like how that came to be and then also how that's shaped what we think we're doing. I mean, even the fact that we have the Bible in particular verses and chapters is a relatively new thing. But mm -hmm. then especially our interest in having thematically organized lists of verses, how that shaped what we think we're doing with kind of cross references and the larger story of the Bible, how that shapes not only the interpretations we have, there's kind of implicit judgments being made, right? Like when you associate yeah. one verse with another one, that's not just a neutral, okay, it's the Bible interpreting the Bible. Like, no, there's decisions being made about why they're relevant to each other, but also then how that teaches us to think about the Bible as isolated data points that can kind of be computed. Um, this, this all started, I'll just tell you, yeah. because I was thinking about kind of AI tools and like people having yeah. this bigger conversation about like technology and should we use certain technologies when it comes to the Bible. And I was more like, why do we even think of the Bible as data points? That's got to be a longer mm -hmm. history. And it really is. I mean, it's been like a long time, especially in American history, from the very beginning of our history, that we've even used the language of data to talk about the Bible. And that's interesting to me. That's not how I read earlier theologians in the church's history talking about the Bible. That's not how I think we maybe should be thinking about the Bible. And so that's concordances in particular are interesting to me because we love them. We love having them at the end of our Bibles. We love having separate concordances. And it is kind of a not entirely uniquely American thing, but our interest in concordances is kind of uniquely American. And that's interesting to me too. Mm. So I, I want to explore this a little bit. You know, you, <laughs> you mentioning the the seeing the Bible as data points. How have you seen that just show up? You know, just in regular churches, maybe in maybe in scholarship work. How how does the seeing the Bible as a data point show up? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways it can it can teach us to think of scripture as very isolated. Um, you know, I don't even I have to admit, I really don't love the language of like the Bible being a library, which I appreciate mm -hmm. people say that because they're trying to say there's all this diversity of genre and authors yeah. and but but traditionally the church has said something really strange about this library or collection of texts that it actually is unified and comes in a certain sense in one voice, even though there's also a diversity there. Um, so I think it can teach us to think of, of the Bible as kind of isolated points, but also I think the underlying impulse here is a way to interpret the Bible that doesn't involve community, doesn't involve any theological authority or learning, doesn't involve the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things I was kind of trying to draw connections in in my research um, and I've written about this, it'll come out, I think, later this year, but mm -hmm. is even thinking about um, rapture novels in the 70s, like all these all these books that come out that are fictional accounts of the rapture. But there's an interesting amount of like emphasis, especially in the 70s and 80s, on computers being used after the rapture mm -hmm. to interpret Bible prophecies. And that's interesting to me, not only because like this is the early era of the computer and they're really, it's interesting that all these different authors think that that's something that like could conceivably happen people using computers to interpret the Bible way before the tools we have now. But what's also interesting to me about it is it seems like part of the desire is to make the interpretation that comes out at the end objective, neutral, not influenced by anything human, any theological authority, not even really requiring the Holy Spirit because a computer can just have this neutral objective interpretation. And our desire for that, I understand where it comes from, but I think that's an interesting desire to learn more about, to instead of saying just, okay, well, let's think about whether we should be using concordances or not, which is an interesting question. Or let's think about AI and if we should be using AI or not. I want to first ask, why do we think these tools make sense with what we think the Bible is? What in us, what need are we trying to meet? And then think about that. If the need is, I'm really uncomfortable with the messy process of my church coming together and working out our interpretation and asking the Holy Spirit to guide us, then I want us to think about if that's a good impulse yeah. and if that's a good yeah. question to ask. And so- Okay, so I, I think you're really hit, and I, I think we could tie this uh, back into the ballad in the Bible, too. Yeah. So you're you're hitting at this tension of subjectiveness for scripture, mm -hmm. while also trying to find the objective reality 
using tools as well. Can you speak to a little bit of that that tension and even even just managing that tension because there is a subjectiveness and there yeah. is an objectiveness. Yes, it's so hard. I I was TAing last semester for an ethics class with, you know, MDiv students and the kind of rub that we kept coming up against was people being like Oh, but I just want you to tell me the rules. <laughs> like, just tell me what to think and that that will be good. And part of what they're saying is like a good impulse, which is to say it's not all just subjective. It's not all just based on context. It's not all just based on your biases and like the theology you're bringing in. I want there to know that there's truth at the end here. And like, it's not mm-hmm. my feelings about it. It's not my preferences. It's this is what is true. But then on the other hand, the challenging thing is we are finite and fallen creatures. And so we might say we believe there is a truthful interpretation of this passage. But we also might have to say, because of our theology of of human creatures, that we don't have complete access to that, that we're not always going to be perfectly able to discern that, and that circumstances do change. We might say, well, we think that in this, you know, this place and time, this word of God means that we need to do this thing. And that might be a different thing in a different time and place. And we're understandably uncomfortable with that, both because it, it, sounds initially like it threatens this idea of truth, of ultimate objective truth. I don't think it does, but initially it seems like it does. But I think secondarily, it's uncomfortable to us because it would be easier if I just said, look, this is the definitive interpretation of all of these Bible passages. This is exactly what it tells you to do. And then there you go, do it. Versus actually, you need to belong to a community of faithful people seeking continually the guidance of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what this means using other tools, using history, using biblical scholars, using theologians to help us, using the Christians throughout the world and throughout time that have given us insights and gifts, using all of that, absolutely, but not thinking that if we just kind of put all the pieces in, we plug all the numbers into the equation, we'll just pop out the right answer. Even today, I'm TAing this semester for an Old Testament class, and we just finished going through Genesis. And the professor today was saying like, this there's not e- these are not parables these are not just like easy pop out at the end here's the moral of the story and now you know what to do they're really challenging they're not the people in these stories are not moral exemplars but also we learn something about how humans work and how god works and so we do learn things about what this means for our life but they're not easy condensable into a single sentence kind of moral stories and that's really that's what we want we would prefer a nice little parable but that is not how god has chosen to reveal himself to us <laughs> yeah I, I know that, and you've you've already mentioned in this, that community can help us sort out that tension as well. I'd be curious, and feel free to elaborate any more on community that you want to, but just navigating that te- that tension of just what you were talking about, what mm-hmm. is, what's helped you in it? What can help other people in it? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because I think sometimes when people hear that, they think, oh, that sounds like such a nice idea. Like me and my community get together and we read scripture together and we figure out what it means. But then all of us have been in a Bible study where you're like, what wacky thing did that person just say? Like, that is ridiculous. That's not right. Um, And that is a reality. And I actually think part of the, you know, benefit of community, part of why we are supposed to interpret scripture in community is not just to get us to the right interpretation, though I think we get to better interpretations together. Part of it is, am I the kind of person that can read this well? Can I hear the word of the Lord rightly? That requires the spiritual formation of sitting in Sunday school rooms with people who say wacky things and learning how to build good relationships with them. Like you can't short circuit this process. You can't step over this messy work and just say, well, someone will just tell me the right answer. Then there we go. No, actually you being the kind of person that can interpret scripture well is important. And you get that way in part by helping people who say, you know, hearing people who say wacky things by carrying babies in church, by doing like regular service and relationship and community Mm that helps make you the kind of person that can hear the word of the Lord, even when it's a difficult word. Like this is not just, can I kind of apply the right grammatical and historical tools and figure out what this means? It's like, well, what very often has happened throughout history is we had all of the tools hypothetically to understand what this meant, but we had financial interests, we had power interests. We didn't want this to be true for reasons that were so deeply embedded in our hearts and our communities that it was functionally impossible for us to actually hear the word of the Lord because we were so biased in what served us. And so it's not just, okay, if I have the right rules, I can interpret it. It's like, am I in relationship with people who are very different from me? Am I serving people? Am I being served by people that maybe even I think have nothing to give me, but actually I learned to receive from them? Those kinds of things are the kinds of things that when I look at the history, I go, 
oh, those people saw something, even if their community was largely saying something that was not truthful, that was not just, that was not merciful. When they were putting themselves in those kinds of positions, they could see surprising things, which is why often in our history, you see marginalized people groups, oppressed people groups, people who are suffering or impoverished, able to see things that scripture is saying more clearly. It's not because they're inherently better people. It's because they're in the kinds of conditions that form you into the kind of person that can see this clearly. When you're on the underside of history, Mm -hmm. you can really see some things that the people who are powerful and wealthy cannot. And that should put like real emphasis on us, not just to, you know, I'm working at a doctorate. I'm around a lot of people who are really smart, know a lot of theology. And I, we were just talking a couple of nights ago, a group of us who were like all students studying to do this professionally. And we were reading in Second Peter when it talks about how you will, you can lead people astray with scripture. First of all, it makes very clear. It's talking about the letters of Paul, but I think this applies in general. Like people can really twist this and misinterpret it and harm other people through it. But what it says at the very beginning of Second Peter is basically, if you have perseverance and godliness and love, that keeps you from misusing this. This actually allows you to really rightly hear what Jesus is saying to you. And I think that for us was this real convicting moment of like, I can have all of the education and the resources at my disposal, but the whole message of, of Second Peter and of other places in scripture too is actually knowledge can be quite dangerous if you are not being formed into the kind of person who can who can handle it well and serves other people with it. Okay. A uh, couple couple of things I want to follow up with that. One, I want to go back to the, as, as you mentioned, if you've led a Bible study before, you probably have gotten the wacky answer before. Uh-huh. I, I would be curious, what, what helps you, like whenever you're leading the Bible study and like you don't want, you don't want the other person to feel stupid about yeah. like the answer. Tell me, tell me how you've navigated just that situation to where you don't want them to feel stupid, but you also, you don't want to just let it slide because. Right, it, right. Yeah. Yeah, they could influence someone else with like yeah. a really bad interpretation. Um, I was just thinking about this recently because I was talking to a friend who um, was filling in for someone on staff at our church who has to stand in front of everyone and ask for prayer requests, which is such a tricky job because someone might, or announcements, announcements or prayer requests, someone might say something totally wacky and you have yeah. to have the skill of kind of, especially because in our church, at least the person who's at the front has to say it again into the microphone so people can hear mm-hmm. it better. So that's your opportunity to like reframe the thing they said in a different yeah. way. And, and yeah. I do think in a in a small group setting, there is an art to learning how to kind of reinterpret, what, find something to affirm and then kind of re, reinterpret it or kind of re-turn um, the conversation into a different place. And that's a skill that takes a lot of practice. Um, and sometimes it takes like, I, I feel like I've learned the most about how to do that well from watching professors in seminary or, you know, being in a Bible study and hearing someone do it. But I think that first part's really important is affirming something in what they said. It is incredibly rare that there is not something truthful in the thing that they said. And even if you think their interpretation has nothing truthful in it, their desire or like what they're, tra- the, the comfort they're trying to seek in this passage, the direction, the guidance mm-hmm. from God they're trying to seek. There is something there to affirm. Even I talk about this a lot when I'm talking to people about having difficult political conversations. Um, if it's if like it's getting heated and the temperature is rising, just finding some ability to say, Hey, I I so appreciate how deeply you care about this. I I really mm-hmm. deeply care about it too. We disagree, but like that's something we really share. We really care about the kids in our community. We really care about good education. We really care about people having food on the table. We might have deep disagreements about how all those things happen, but we really care about it. And that's important. So even in a in a small group setting being like, oh, I love that this verse meant something to you. Like, I love that this was exciting to you. And then finding a way to kind of turn it in a different direction without so explicitly making the confrontation of like, but this is totally wrong. But I also think Sometimes also saying like, sometimes when when someone says something really wacky, at least in my experience, it doesn't usually bother me if it's just like, oh, I think that's factually wrong. Or I think that's what bothers me is if it's like, no, I think you're like misrepresenting God here. Like, mm-hmm. I think you're really. And that's where I, I think part of it is your posture. If you go into it and you're like, no, that was wrong and I'm right. And this is the answer. That's very different than. For example, I was just thinking recently, I was in a small group where I was leading and I was one of the youngest people. It was a super intergenerational group. So that's already a difficult context to be in. Mm-hmm. And there was someone in the group, we were talking about um, the conversation Jesus has with the Seraphonician woman. So like difficult passage. And someone in this group was just like insistent that this wasn't a problem. Like, I don't care if Jesus called me a dog. That's fine because I am a worthless sinner and Jesus can call me whatever he wants. And so the issue wasn't like, oh, I think your interpretation is wrong. It was like, oh, I think 
I think you're kind of elevating yourself. <laughs> like there's some self-righteousness going on here, but also I think you're kind of trying to make other people in the group feel bad that this is uncomfortable for them, that this passage is challenging. And so instead of being like, no, you're wrong, actually lots of biblical scholars for thousands of years have struggled with this. This is actually a difficult mm -hmm. passage. Instead, I tried to say, well, maybe so-and-so, what you're not really, what, what what's not hitting you the same way it's hitting us isn't just that I'm kind of feeling more important than a dog and I'm annoyed that Jesus would say it. It's actually that Jesus doesn't sound this way in other stories. And I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile these different things. And it's not just that like, I can't handle the hard truth. It's like, we're trying to work out who is Jesus. Can we trust him? How does he treat people? Is that a model for us? How should we treat people? And so instead of just being like, no, you're wrong. Actually, this is a really hard passage. I thought it was helpful to be like, I'm trying to articulate to you what other people are thinking, just as I want to affirm like, hey, I love yeah. that you love this, or I love that this is yeah. important to you, saying to someone else like, hey, for us, this is what is hard because of our concern for scripture, because we care about Jesus. That's a very different response than just like, let's battle it out because I think your interpretation is wrong. Mm -hmm. So I want, to, I want to go back to what you mentioned about sometimes intentionally, unintentionally, we can use scripture to, um, to lead people astray. In it. And that ties back to your book, The Ballad in the Bible, because that can happen all the time with, mm -hmm. with uh, political ideology and as it intersects with scripture and stuff. And so I, I'd be curious to hear what are some of, and I, I know it's, I know it's hard to judge intentions on this, but I'd be curious to hear what are some of the unintentional ways that you see people misusing scripture to, um, to further a political view or, or agenda or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think I I try to have a sympathetic approach with history um, because I'm not in the context of the people that I'm thinking about. It's easy. It's so much easier to go back and be like, well, what idiots they were. Like they totally missed what was actually happening. Um, but instead to say, first of all, people are so deeply shaped by the context that they're in. And so for mm -hmm. me, one of the most common kind of problems that's unintentional is just not being self-reflective about what biases and prejudices I am bringing some of those are good. I want Christians to come to the Bible and assume that the Trinity is there. <laughs> I want there to be certain theological presuppositions we bring to the text. However, we also bring all sorts of social and cultural and political baggage that that not only might really cause us to warp the meaning of scripture, but just might make us miss things. Like we just kind of make assumptions because of the context we're coming into. So I think you see that throughout the history a lot, um, including in like the Revolutionary War era, where there's all these verses about freedom and liberty that get pulled out of their context. And all of our associations at that period, all the new political theory about what freedom actually meant, which was a new concept we were deciding on, gets imported into these verses. And suddenly it makes sense that if you're hearing political speeches all the time about what liberty really means and how that shapes your community, and then you come to the text and in English it says liberty, of course you're going to associate it with those things. That's inevitable. And then it poses the question for us of like, what words do we have very American 21st century associations with that we read into the text? Um, and then another one that I think just kind of is a <clears throat> unintentional problem and it kind of goes back to this concordance thing, which yeah. is when it comes to political and social issues, what often happens is a political you know, issue presents itself and good Christians go to their concordance and they look up the relevant verses and they go, okay, well, these four verses line up on you know, the Democrat side and these six verses line up on the Republican side or the yes or the no side or whatever. And then we figure it out. And that whole process not only does have all of our own biases and prejudices in it, because whatever words we're looking up in the concordance, we're already making judgments about what that political issue is really about and how it relates to the Bible. And But in, it also just by that order of events, political situation presents itself, we go looking to the Bible. That just order brings in more of our own bias of the moment and our, our, our political positions we've already decided upon. It makes it a lot harder to kind of freshly hear the word of the Lord. Instead of saying, Hey, in our church together, we're reading throughout the whole canon of scripture throughout the year. And every single time we come to it, we assume it says something, not just to our personal or our spiritual lives. It says those things, but it also says something to our communal life, our political life, to the life of our whole community outside of our church. And so we expect that and we learn throughout the year instead of posing questions to the Bible that maybe the Bible is uninterested in answering, that the Bible doesn't ask. Um, when we do it that other first way, 
a lot of our biases and prejudice come in. But again, we're asking questions the Bible just doesn't often ask. In the kind of 70s and 80s, when we're having a big debate about capitalism and socialism, there was like tons of Christian books published called The Bible. Does it support capitalism or socialism? Variations on that title. And it's just such a weird question because it's like the Bible doesn't ask that question or answer that question. That's just not the relevant question. Does the Bible say a lot about money and how human communities should be organized and how God judges nations based on how they treat the poor? Like, absolutely. But by framing the question, capitalism or socialism, you're predetermining what answers the Bible is allowed to give you, a yes or a no, a capitalism or a socialism, instead of saying, like, actually, what the Bible tells me about money and communities might be totally outside of the terms as they are set by the political context that I am in. And if I go in with that question first, I might really miss what's actually going on. So that's the kind of like, there's good intentions there in a certain sense. Yeah. Like, I want it, I want scripture to shape my political life, but the way you're going about it doesn't really let scripture speak for itself, doesn't let God speak in ways that surprise you or actually kind of go outside of the terms as the political arena you're in sets them and actually maybe makes demands on you that are quite specific in the time and place you're in. It instead asks these questions that that scripture just might not be asking. Mm-hmm. What are What's uh, a question or two that you find that people are asking the Bible to answer or at or ask that um that they're they're not going to find anything there because of of what you were just saying. It's a good question. Um, well, to be honest, I um just pretty recently there was you know a whole conversation about the student loan forgiveness kind of debate and all these people and it came right on the heels i think it's interesting of of roe v wade being overturned and so there was like all these people in roe v wade that were like battling back and forth bible verses i also think it's interesting a lot of people in that period were like hey stop the bible doesn't actually talk about abortion ever so we shouldn't really talk about the bible and abortion and then the student loan forgiveness thing happened and the same people who were like the bible doesn't talk about abortion were suddenly like hello the bible talks a lot about debt forgiveness (laughs) so we should talk about debt forgiveness so we're selective, you know, in when we think it's relevant and when we think mm-hmm. it's not, in part because almost every political question we're deciding today, in a certain sense, the Bible doesn't talk about. The Bible mm-hmm. does not assume a modern liberal democracy and all the policies that get associated with that. That's just, I mean, that should be easily agreed upon by all of us. The Bible is not mm-hmm. talking about that. But I think it would be better for us to say, well, the Bible has a lot to say, like I said before, about how human communities function, about how money is used, about authority and what is rightful authority. And we should be asking how that applies to the very different contexts that we're in politically, socially, historically. But instead, we often say, okay, does the Bible support or not student loan forgiveness? Instead of saying, well, actually, like the Bible's not answering that question. And I don't think it would be helpful for us to say, let's institute the whole like Jubilee system in American mm-hmm. politics today. I don't think that's probably going to happen. And there's some questions I have about if that would be a good idea. But instead saying, but the Bible does place a great demand upon us to recognize that generational wealth injustices happen and there have to be mechanisms to relieve that. That does not actually answer the question for us of if student loan forgiveness actually does that. Does it rectify Mm -hmm. generational injustice when it comes to wealth? There are reasons it could. There are reasons it could not, actually. There's a lot of people at the time that were saying, does this actually address the deeper issues for people who don't go to college that are all have all these same dynamics? Um, So I think it could could cause us to miss the demand of scripture upon us to find ways to rectify those injustices. Because all we're asking is student loan forgiveness, yes, no. When the Bible actually says, hey, actually it might cause it might it might require something much bigger, much more systemic, and it might require something smaller. It might actually require mm-hmm. you and your very specific community to ask, where are the evidences of systemic injustice and what does that mean for the money that I have and the way I spend it? But instead, we want to avoid that question. Yeah. And so we say, <laughs> student loan forgiveness, yes, no, let's fight about it on Facebook, which is not as productive. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned about self-reflection because I think this also ties into that as well. And I wish I was better at self-reflection. I feel like I'm getting better <laughs> at it, but I would just be curious to hear, like in that self-reflection, in that like identifying identifying your bias identifying like hey this is this is the like let, let's let's use the the student loan forgiveness mm-hmm. thing even identifying like okay so so what are the the bigger things that maybe the spite that the bible speaks to that can help me inform my approach can you kind of maybe like walk me through kind of what that that self-reflection can look mm-hmm. like in terms of identifying the factors thinking through the factors identifying biases things like that 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's helpful and let's say you're addressing a particular issue, but this is also something to just do outside of the lens of a particular issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I have found one of the most helpful things for my own self-reflection is just reading Christians in other times and places and noticing what feels really absurd to me um, and and just paying attention to that and going like, well, maybe that's because something absurd was happening in this time and place for them. Maybe it's because actually my assumptions about the Christian life are absurd from their perspective and yeah. I should evaluate them. Um, for example, I remember in seminary reading um, St. Basil's on social justice, which he has harsh words for how Christians use their money, um, especially goes to the story of like the person who builds the extra barn, you know, the parable of the person who builds the extra barn to continue storing things up and then they lose all of it. And basically is condemning all these rich people, even to the point of saying, like, you don't get to use the justification of taking care of your children in the future for hoarding money. You have to trust God to take care of them. Don't basically like do not hoard up money for your children in the future. A hard word. I mean, he's speaking in a very different context where the assumptions not only about money, but about kind of like your obligation to your family and your obligation to your country were different for Christians than most of the assumptions that we have about the importance of family and the importance of country. And um, and so you read that. And I remember one of my professors in seminary being like, OK, what sounds crazy to us should be a point at which we start asking, are we crazy to him? Like, is is he looking at the average American Christian life and going, that is nuts. Like the money you have and the way you spend it and the way you think about family and children and your country is just nuts. Um, and so that I think that that's the kind of provocation that you need because the self-reflective thing is both the kind of slow work of mm -hmm. evaluating what makes me upset? <laughs> when do I get defensive? What, what, what really kind yeah. of pushes my buttons? But it's also the like work of just reading a bunch of people and seeing what is unveiled in the process. Like what is what suddenly seems strange that used to seem normal to you. And it might be that you really do determine, I mean, Christians have done some wacky stuff in history. Maybe you decide that it's actually them that's weird and not you. Yeah. But more often than not, I have gone, ooh, that's actually a real challenge to me. Um, and that's different work than that might be harder to do if it's here's a particular issue and now I sit down and do the work. That's easier to do if you're like, Hey, I have a I have a practice of, you know, reading a book a year or, you know, reading something that goes monthly of Christians and other times and places. And that helps me just be the kind of person that over time has built up a sense of what's weird about my context versus how do they kind of provoke me. And then when the issue presents itself, I'm a little more ready to see it. But you could take any particular issue and go, I'm going to read Christians on money from a bunch of different times and places, or I'm going to read Christians on immigration for a bunch of different times and places. Um, you still have to do the inner work. You could read all that stuff and not have it affect yeah. you. Yeah. But I do think the work of reading it, especially if you read it again in community with people who can kind of hold you accountable and have us all say to each other, like, did you, were you convicted by this? Cause this <laughs> seemed wild to me that that's the kind of thing that, um, that doesn't seem like the self-reflective work, but mm -hmm. I think that's, that's part of it being provoked mm -hmm. in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I really like that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I would be curious to hear, you know, whatever, whenever you were beginning the the idea or the work for the ballad and the Bible, was there a particular misuse of scripture that got you thinking about this idea? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, I, it really started with the second chapter of the book, which is about how Romans 13 was used in the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. And really the, the, the start of the book wasn't just, okay, there's historical examples of misuse and I think we should talk about them. The initial idea for the book was, I want something that helps us talk together about scripture and our political lives, because it should be for Christians who disagree politically, this common ground that we can have conversations about the Bible and it can, we can discern together what God is asking of us in our life and our time and place. And yet that's not how the Bible is used. We throw Bible verses back and forth at each other. It's like a weapon in each of our hands. We're not really able to have good conversations with each other about it. So then I tried to think, well, what could help us? Like, how do I broach some of these difficult topics in such a way that people, the temperature might be lowered. People might actually be able to hear each other and kind of think critically without all of the really intense feelings that come with the weight of particular things happening in the moment. And so then I thought, well, what if we had examples throughout history? So the Romans 13 one was me looking at people who've used Romans 13 against Black Lives Matter protests, um, in support of separating immigrant children from their parents at the border, but then also in support of following COVID restrictions on masking and meeting regulations. And I just kind of went, we use it in a bunch of different ways, like different people who fall on different political ends of the spectrum use this both just kind of selectively. 
And we don't really know what it means. And it's really hard for us to have a conversation about what it means if I say to someone, hey, let's talk about if Romans 13 applies to the Black Lives Matter protests. Like that temperatures are high, walls are mm -hmm. up. Like you are probably not going to have a good conversation unless you all already agree with each other. Mm -hmm. So instead I thought, what, what's kind of a surprising use of Romans 13 that might kind of provoke us or unsettle us? And I thought about the fact, I knew already that this was probably true. And then I found out that it was incredibly true that loyalist priests during the Revolutionary War loved using Romans 13 and um, 1 Peter 2.17, which says, fear God and honor the king <laughs> in the King James Version. They loved using these verses that are obey the government against the Revolutionary War. And that is uncomfortable for us because sometimes we love using Romans 13 as like, oh, obey the government whenever we like what the government is doing. But in this case, the country that we celebrate with like, you know, fireworks and hot dogs on the 4th of July, is that justified with this use of Romans 13? Can that can that use of Romans 13 make sense of the beginning of the country that we put so much identity and sense of community in? And so I both wanted to look at some particular examples. There's a sermon that I use in that chapter to kind of say, is this a good use of Romans 13 or not? And what can we learn from it? But I also just wanted each of these uses to unsettle us a little bit, like I was just talking about, like provoke us to go oh my gosh, your whole assumptions about what Christianity means in your political context are counter to what I assume. What does that teach me? Where is maybe this person I'm reading wrong? And then maybe where am I wrong? And then once I had that idea, I was like, okay, we should just keep doing historical examples because I think they're helpful. I think yeah. they not only help us be surprised and, and kind of lower the temperature by looking at something that's not the immediate political demand of the moment, but also for American Christians, I wanted us to get a sense of we inherit certain habits mm -hmm. from Christians prior to us in America. Even if they're from a different tradition or denomination than us, we still learn certain things about how to read the Bible for politics by the people who have been, you know, especially the biggest preachers and politicians who've used it. We inherit those habits of reading the Bible. And so I wanted us to think about those too. Mm -hmm. It also helps us to see the complexity of history too. Yeah. <laughs> just just with it, because I mean, just what you were saying, we, we paint it. So especially, you know, the American revolution is such, is such an easy target to go to like, yeah, everybody was, you know, for yep. being free from Britain. And why wouldn't you be? Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. Um, uh, I, I'd be curious to hear what, um, in, in your research, what most surprised, actually, sorry, let me back up. I do sure. want to ask about what most surprised you. Um, but I do want to uh, dial down a little bit on the Romans 13 a little bit mm -hmm. and maybe maybe help us think through some of the context that can help us better think through Romans 13 also. Yeah, you know, it was fun because I feel like I've spent a lot of my life now thinking about Romans 13. When you yeah. talk about faith and politics, it's kind of a, you know, vocational hazard. You just have to talk about Romans 13 a lot. Um, I think one of the things that's helped me the most think about it um, is to with any passage of scripture, especially ones that are being used in a political context, is to make sure I'm thinking about both the historical context, the literary context, and the theological context. The historical context of Romans 13 is complicated because we actually have changed our minds a lot about what we think was happening at the time. Mm -hmm. I won't bore you with like all of the details, but there's just like very competing theories of what Paul is really addressing. And for a lot of our history, we thought that Christians were really persecuted during the time when he wrote it. And so he must be saying, ooh, submit even under these harsh conditions. Mm -hmm. Now we actually think that probably Christians weren't being persecuted very much at the time. Yeah. So that kind of changes. So in this case, we can learn a lot about kind of how the Roman Empire functioned and that can shape our interpretation. But I don't know that we want to put too much weight on the specific event that Paul was kind of addressing. But then you've got the literary context, which people forget about a lot. One of my seminary professors always used to say about whatever passage he was talking about, that the best thing he can tell you about Romans 13 is that before it comes Romans 12. <laughs> just like a reminder that like the best thing you could do is just remember that there is a context. And Romans 12 is all about instructions for the Christian community on interacting with the outside world. First, how to love one another internally, but then what does it mean to live as a faithful Christian in the world? And I think sometimes for us, when we have so much history of relative cultural and political power, it's hard for us to remember how tempting it would have been for this early community figuring out its identity to isolate itself, both to kind of ward off the sinful temptations of the world, which were very literal and real in a way that, you know, we don't we don't have literal idols that we're worried about worshiping, yeah. but they did. But also just this sense of we are afraid of being mistreated. Even if the persecution wasn't as intense as we think, they still were not well-treated in society. And so the natural impulse would be 
let's look internally. Let's just pool our resources together. Let's batten down the hatches. Let's stay focused inside. And it seems like the whole thrust of Romans 13, especially when taken in the context of Romans 12, which is saying, don't retaliate, leave that, leave vengeance to God, love others, live quiet lives and peaceful lives. As, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It seems like Romans 13 is continuing that and saying, hey, don't just focus internally. Pay attention to the larger community that you're in. We forget that that section of Romans 13 ends with pay your taxes, <laughs> contribute to your larger community. You actually do belong to it. You are no longer, as Israel was, awaiting kind of an autonomous nationhood. You actually exist under lots of different political circumstances, and you can be full participants in them. And yet, you recognize that their authority does not come from themselves, or in the case of the Roman Empire, does not come from the Roman gods. It comes from the one true God. And so in the case of what Paul's saying, it's pretty radical to tell the Roman authorities, actually, your authority does not come from the Roman gods. It comes from Christ who you crucified. So he is kind of elevating them. He is saying you live in these communities and you have obligations to them. But also that obligation is situated under this larger obligation to God, which is the third the theological context to say this cannot be isolated, even just to the book of Romans, to the literary context of that one book. You have to make sense of Romans 13, obey the governing authorities, with something like Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than human beings, or the whole book of Revelation. I love doing an exercise with groups where I have us read Romans 13 and Revelation 13, because Revelation 13 is like a picture of human authority turned against God and how that is condemned. And so you have to make sense of it in this whole context of scripture. In the revolutionary period, a lot of uh, revolutionary priests and pastors would go to stories in the Old Testament of corrupt kings and say, like, look at how bad they are. It's just like us. And now mm -hmm. we are justified in overthrowing them because of how much they are abusing their God-given power. You have to make sense of that, too. You have to make sense of these stories with these commands. And so anytime we're not paying attention, I think, to those three contexts, we're going to go wrong. Actually, I've come to love Romans 13 so much because I do think it is a picture of something I spent a lot of my time talking about, which is telling people, you belong to your larger community. You have obligations to it. You do have to look internally. That's why this beginning of Romans 12 talks about how you treat one another within the community of faith. But that's always oriented outwards since the very beginning, since the first conversation God had with Abraham, that he would have blessings for his family, but also you will be a blessing to the nations. That's a, I think that's a picture that shows up in all sorts of different ways, but it's also in Romans 13. It's not just a kind of mean command that we have to deal with of just yeah. under any circumstances obey the government. I think it's a much bigger picture than that. Mm -hmm. What surprised you the most in your research? That's a good question. Um, I think honestly, I mean, some of it I kind of, I had an idea of the kind of historical eras that I wanted mm -hmm. to do. Um, I think maybe what surprised me the most was how often the kind of writings and sermons I would see in periods, you know, 100, 200 years ago, sounded so much like now. Um, a good example being in both the Revolutionary War era and then also in the Civil War era, there were so many sermons and letters I read where a pastor or a priest would say, you know, our churches are growing because we just preach the gospel. But those churches over there, they are dying because they preach politics from the pulpit. And it was like, you could be a Facebook status today. Like yeah. that's, it's exactly the same thing. And it all kind of boils down to what do you think is a demand of the gospel? And what do you think is just a political question? And we're going to make different determinations of, of where that line is. And that's what they were doing. It was um, you know, happening on both sides. But part of what they were trying to say was, well, the political side I'm on is just the right Christian side. So I'm just preaching the gospel. It's those other people that are kind of getting, you know, tangled up in politics. And that's the problem. And so it's interesting to realize, like, we've kind of had the same habits the whole time, um, which is, you know, hopefully a lesson for us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd, I'd be curious to he hear your thoughts on, you know, the book has been out for a little while. Mm -hmm. And what's what's part of the book that, you know, you, you've, you've probably just found like a lot of things that people like to hit on or talk talk about the book. What's something that you wish that more people were asking or focusing on as it pertains to the book? That's a great question. Um, honestly, the one chapter that I'm like the most proud of and that I really love is also the one that very rarely people ask me about. Um, <laughs> it's one of the later chapters. So I understand to some people, it's not like interesting new history, but I spent yeah. a whole chapter talking about the prayer breakfast speeches of George W. Bush and Obama. Yeah. And what I loved about that was one, it's probably like the most truly original part of the book. I have not read anything that really spends so much time focusing on those speeches. 
But the part that I found so interesting is, you know, I get asked questions all the time about the book, not about this chapter, but just in general by Christians who feel like the Bible has been so abused in American history. Should we even be using it? Like in a pluralistic world, shouldn't I just not talk about Christian reasons or biblical reasons for politics? And I always want to direct them to this chapter because what I think is so interesting is that George W. Bush seen as like the Christian president. And there's so many times when Christian leaders would talk, you know, wax poetic about how Christian and wonderful he was. In all of his eight prayer breakfast speeches, he never says the name of Jesus Christ once. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about sovereignty. He talks a lot about prayer. We're a nation of prayer. But his assumption that we all kind of generally live in a Christian nation actually led him to be pretty unspecific about his faith. And he was concerned about being seen as too Christian and too kind of theocratic. And But really, I think part of it was just at that time, it was still possible to act like we all kind of believe the same generally Christian, the Judeo-Christian beliefs, right? We all kind of believe the same things. Whereas Obama talked about Jesus in almost every one of his national prayer breakfast speeches by name, including in one point talking about the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Mm -hmm. He quoted the Bible a lot more. And what I don't want people to take from that is like, George Bush bad, Obama good. There's good and bad in both of them. But what I want them to take from it is what I found so interesting was I actually think the fact that Obama talked so much more than Bush did about the fact that we live in a pluralistic nation. He talked more often about religious minorities. He 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 would quote from the Bible, but also from the Torah and the Quran and would say, that's what I'm doing. In one of his early speeches, he talks about, we pray to different gods and we read different texts. And he was aware of the diversity and the pluralism. But it was almost like, because he was so aware of that, he was more specific about what his faith brought. He couldn't say like Bush, oh, we all kind of believe the same things. We're all sort of generally civically Christian, et cetera. No, he would say, we we believe very different things. And I want all of us to bring those gifts to bear on our public life. I'm going to quote very specifically from scripture. In one of his speeches, he talks a lot about what that means for how we treat the poor and some particular policies that were aimed at addressing those questions, how we treat children. He, he wanted those specific Christian gifts to be, be to, to be brought to our public life. But he also wanted to extend that as an act of hospitality to say, you bring your gifts too. And he didn't do it perfectly and he didn't do policies perfectly and he's not a perfect person. But it's helped shape my understanding of what I want my public presence to be. I want to say truthfully to people, I care about the things I care about politically because this is how I think scripture demands that we act. I'm not going to be perfect in my interpretation of it, but I'm genuinely trying to have scripture shape my public life. I also want my literal next door neighbors, one wall over from me, Muslim family. I want them to bring their religious convictions into public life. We will disagree deeply. But what sounds much better to me is not a, a country where we kind of pretend we believe the same things and don't really get very specific about it, but a country where I say, actually, I really think that scripture demands this of our political life. And my neighbors say, yeah, my religious tradition teaches this. And we work it out together. We have open, honest conversations. We're hospitable to one another. We won't do it perfectly. That doesn't solve all our problems. But that was helpful for me to see in, in these two presidents, both the change that has happened in America over how much we can kind of assume similarity, but also kind of some hopefulness that like you don't have to choose between Christian convictions and public life and being hospitable to other traditions, other religions, other people, whether they have faith or not. Um, actually, there's a way in which those two things work together really well. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear, I know we talked about this towards the beginning, are there, uh, or what other tangents are there that through discovering this that you're more interested in exploring about? Yeah, I just think I'm not going to ever be done with the history of the Bible <laughs> in America. Like, it's just endless. There is so yeah. much, and it's so interesting. Um, right now I'm doing a little bit partially for my, <laughs> my exams I have to take for my program. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a bunch of research on kind of, like I said, early modern European, especially British uses of scripture and political life, because we forget, we act like our country just like started <laughs> and the people that came had no background or no oh. history. They're already American before America even exists as a nation. Um, and my advisor is British. And so he also is very concerned that I don't have that account of American history. So I'm, I'm reading a bunch of that stuff now. And that is really, really interesting and really helpful. Um, and just the more that I get into it, it's both intimidating how the sheer amount of stuff that has been written about the Bible in political life, even in this one kind of part of the world and part of history I'm interested in. But it's also really exciting because it's like, oh gosh, I could spend the rest of my life just on this and I yeah. would never run out of things to read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got two other questions I want to ask you, but before that, I always just love 
asking, is there anything that we haven't, and there's so many, so many other examples that we could cover in the book, but is there anything just top of mind, you know, related to our conversation or just in the book that you want to make sure that we talk about? I don't think so, actually. Okay, cool. Uh, One of the things I was really interested in asking about is there's a lot of examples uh, in the book of how people have misused scripture. I would love to hear what's uh, maybe, I don't know, I won't limit to you, Teresa, but an example of of someone who used scripture very well in terms of political engagement. And again, Mm -hmm. you know, all the caveats, you don't have to agree with them and stuff like that. But it's just like, wow, this person, I may not have agreed with them or I agree with them, but they actually used it very well Mm -hmm. in political engagement. Yeah, I feel like I've spent a lot of the last year just encouraging people to to read Mariah Stewart. Um, Mariah Stewart is spelled like Maria, but that was not how you pronounced it at the time. Um, she's an incredible, she was an abolitionist, a women's rights activist. She has a, a fascinating life um, and had a pretty short period of really fruitful writing. It was when she was pretty young, a widow, a young widow, and um, she wrote a, a handful of speeches and got them published later in her life. Um, but she uses scripture towards the cause of abolition. But what I love so much about it is that she doesn't see a divide between our personal spiritual lives and political demands upon us. She's constantly going back and forth between the need for us to live faithful lives, for us to care for our families and our communities, for us to use our money well, for us to just live basic Christian virtuous lives. She's concerned with virtue and morality in a significant way. But that doesn't seem like that's separate to her in a way that we often think it is, from also the demand upon her community to advocate for themselves politically. So she's writing both with this sense that the Bible speaks to our personal life and our political life. But what I also really love about her is she so often is going back to kind of an eschatological frame. She's saying, hey, look, I can fight for justice because I know that ultimately God promises redemption and restoration for all of creation and the resurrection of my body. And so she speaks really fiery. She speaks some judgment against America um, in a way that is seems quite truthful, right? She's talking in a period in which the leaders of America are justifying the enslavement and abuse of people made in God's image. So it's perfectly just for her to to have some pretty fiery condemnations of America. But what I love is it's not just condemnation disassociated from the larger biblical story. She draws on biblical language to say, God has promised to do what God has done in the past in the future as well. God will restore and redeem all things, which also means justice, which means that those who abuse people made in God's image will be brought to justice. And those who suffered under that injustice will be vindicated. And ultimately, um, she uses this language um, from Revelation of kind of sitting on the throne of heaven. Like those are the people that she's imagining being vindicated in eternity. And so it's, I think it's not only really beautiful use of scripture because she uses so many, I mean, it's just, you can tell she knew the Bible so well because she's using constant little phrases and, and references. But also I love that it was the whole thing. It was, this speaks to my whole life, the various parts of my life, and I'm not kind of using it like a tool. It's not just useful for this one political goal. It's It it actually speaks a hard word to my own life. Like it demands something of me and my morality. I have to change how I live and I have to demand that my community change how we live because we're wrong. And that feels like if it's inconvenient to you, you're not using it like a tool. You're trying to really submit yourself. You might do it imperfectly, Mm -hmm. but you know you're using it like a tool when it just so happens to not inconvenience you. And she was Mm -hmm. pretty committed to it inconveniencing her and especially though it inconveniencing the people in power, which is important. Mm -hmm. And that that makes me uh, think about the other thing that I want to ask you about or elaborate on is I think it's towards the end of the book. You talk about, um, uh, I think it's Holda and uh, mm-hmm. King Josiah as well and how they used scripture and, and, and it's a little bit different than how we use scripture. Would you mind just elaborating and telling us that story? Yeah. Thank you for that. It's one of my favorite. Holda's become one of my favorite biblical characters and one of my favorite stories. Mm. Um, I partially wanted to end the book on this story because I think if you look at American history, you can find different examples of what we might call prophetic witness. And it's exciting to think that like you could be Moses speaking the truth to Pharaoh, or you could really be Jesus flipping tables, or you could. And I wanted to offer just a little word of caution with that because I want us to speak prophetically to the world. If what that means is we tell the truth about what God has done and is doing. I don't want us to speak prophetically if what we mean is I enjoy being contentious. (laughs) I like making a fuss. I get some kind of joy out of the kind of drama of it. 
And hold is such a good example because unlike most of the biblical prophets that I at least don't experience the way that they experienced God, right? I'm not getting direct revelation and saying, thus saith the Lord. Holda doesn't either, actually, but she's called a prophet. And what she does is um, under Josiah's reign, which scripture says he was a good and faithful king, they discover in the rebuilding of the temple, the law. And Hilkiah, the high priest, goes to Josiah and says, we found this. And Josiah says, let's find a prophet to interpret it. And they find Holda, which is interesting. Like side note, they find this woman to interpret it. Kind of cool. And she interprets the law and basically says, yes, based on my reading of this and my reading of the situation that we are in, judgment is coming for us. Like this says that if we are not acting faithfully, if we are worshiping idols, if we are mistreating people made in God's image, then we will be judged. And I know enough about our situation to know we are doing those things. So we will be judged. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a good picture, not only of of a different approach to this concept of prophetic for us to model of I'm able to read God's word and God's worlds. I'm able to interpret what time is it, what's happening right now, and how does that relate to what God says? But also, it's a very different kind of thing to read the word of the Lord as a judgment against us, to not read it as propping up whatever political project we already wanted to support, not reading it solely as a comfort, though it is a comfort. But the amazing thing about this story is that Holda says this incredibly difficult word, and Josiah repents. It's like, this is bad. Like you are right. We need to change our ways. That is a rare instance in scripture where a powerful person hears the word of the Lord against their interests. It's in Josiah's best interest to to have hold to say, oh no, no, it's fine. God's not really going to judge us. We'll be okay. It'd be easy for him to say, give me a new prophet. Like someone else give a better interpretation. We have precedent of that in scripture. And instead he repents and actually he is, he is uh, rewarded by God for it. Um, and I think that's a, a really important picture for us to get, not only of what Holda does, to model what Holda does, but then to say many of us are in relative positions of power. And are we able to hear the word of the Lord against our financial interests, against our social interests, against just the world as we think it should be? Um, that's a harder question. That goes back to the self-reflective thing of like, this is spiritual formation in community that's required. You will not automatically be the kind of person who can hear that kind of word and actually hear it and respond or as Jesus says um, in Luke, hear the word of the Lord and obey. That that Those are the people that are his family. Doing that is actually really challenging um, because those interests can blind us. But I think Josiah gives us a, a good reminder that it's possible and then provokes us to ask what is required in our communities to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Caitlin, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, The Ballot and the Bible. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? If you go to CaitlinChess.com, I have links to a bunch of different places. You can buy it. It's always good to get it at Baker Bookhouse, um, support a bookstore and support the publisher. But anywhere you get books, you can get it. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the great conversation. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you so much, Caleb. So I think reflecting back on just the conversation with Caitlin, one of the things that really just stands out to me and one of the things that just has me thinking a lot is what she was mentioning about uh, self-reflection and that there there is meant to be a moment for for pausing and, and I, reflective isn't the, I don't even think that that's the word that she used. But, but being just being a little bit more passive in it, of thinking about yourself, thinking about, you know, what, what's preventing me from looking uh, at this clearly, what are some of the biases getting in the way? What are, what are, what, what am I bringing to this? And focusing more on the, what is on the provocation of it? Uh, what are some of the, the topics and the things that I'm just interested in exploring about to, to deepen my learning, to deepen my thinking on that? Whether it be money or society or or uh, um, uh, family, I think it's family systems theory. It whatever the thing is, what am I choosing to ga- engage in proactively to provoke myself to think deeper, to th- to to provoke myself to think critically, more critically, to provoke myself to think and gain more context around it as well and so i would say that that's one of the big things that i'm just thinking about from this conversation and 
and just very uh, just excited to explore that as one and excited to just put that into um, put that into just be more intentional about it with my life as well and the the other thing that I think of is man in in whatever place that I find myself to have power or whatever place that I find myself to have um, status wherever I find myself to be in a position like Josiah am I willing to listen to the holders am I willing to respond well to the scripture to the truth that's being said am I open to being corrected by anybody am I open to that feedback as well and so it's it's just such a powerful story and has really just got me thinking as well just as this whole conversation has and so yeah i think that's all that i have for today i do want to say thank you to sam massey for creating the music for this podcast thank you uh to caitlin for being on the podcast as well and just for the great book love love all the historical anecdotes and notes just all throughout it and the stories and things learned in there and uh just thanks for the great conversation as well and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing Thank you.